All right, well, good morning again, and let's go ahead and open up our Bibles for the last time in this series to the book of Joel. We'll be in Joel chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the passage we'll be on on page 763 of a blue pew Bible. And I still don't know if I totally believe it, but the staff keeps telling me that it is indeed Thanksgiving later this week. Uh, I thought for sure we had like another month left, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust them on this one. And uh, which means we're looking forward to our Thanksgiving Eve service on Wednesday night, 7 o'clock here. Um, special service, in many ways the most unique service we have throughout the year at Grace um, in that uh, the bulk of the time or much of the time is really just amongst the congregation, people sharing with one another. You're not going to be forced to speak if you come, so don't let that keep you from coming. Uh, but you'll hear from many um, other just members and tenders at Grace uh, in ways that we don't really have the opportunity to hear from throughout the rest of the year. And so uh, we're looking forward to that on Wednesday. Uh, but first, we got some work to do this morning as we end our series in the book of Joel, our final passage. And I think we have seen a lot in this book in a relatively short amount of time. And so in this week, not only do we want to preach the final passage, but take this opportunity to see, uh, to reflect upon, and, and really glory in the truth that we love and serve a God who has made himself known to us. That all that we are, all that we strive for in life day in and day out, all that we hope in and put our hopes in, all the joy, all the mourning, is rooted in this foundational truth that God has revealed himself to us. And no matter how long you have been following the Lord, no matter what kind of season in your walk with the Lord that you think you're in right now, when that truth that God has made himself known to us, when that truth falls afresh on you, it, it does something that is almost hard to explain. It is soul-stirring, life-shaping. And so we're going to cover verses 17 to 21 in chapter 3, but I'm going to actually start at verse 16, which we call, uh, where we left off last week, because while in your Bible, probably like mine, it, 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 there's a subdivision in the text between verses 16 and 17. Uh, verse 17 is really a continuation of what uh, Joel declared in verse 16. So we're going to start in verse 16, Joel chapter 3. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The phrase we're going to zero in on is the one that begins verse 17. 
So you shall know that I am the Lord your God. It jumps off the page to me. I hope it jumps off the page to you that all that has happened in Joel, all that we've talked about across the last six weeks, all that has been promised, all that has been lamented, has the foundational purpose of knowing God. Not the God of our imagination, um, not the God that we create because we feel like that would be a God that we kind of want to follow. Maybe that's the kind of God that would make much of us. So this is not the God of our creation, but it is the God who is. For he has revealed himself. That all of the book of Joel, which is a microcosm of all of scripture, is a revelation. Joel, in its entirety, is a revelation a description of who God is and what God is up to in the world. And, and I have said this countless of times before, and I will say hopefully countless times again as long as the Lord has me here, that dwelling upon and digging deeper into the character of God, dwelling upon and digging deeper into the character of God will do more to shape, to direct, to order your life and your joy for his glory than any self-help program will, than any kind of list five ways to do that on this entire plan that you might come across. I'm not against lists and I'm not against self-help programs, but none of them will compare to what will happen in shaping your life than digging deeper into who God is. And we're reminded this morning that following Christ is a marathon, not a sprint. That we're not looking for a get holy quick guide here. We're looking for a person to follow so that over the course of time and doing that in community with others, we can look more like him and think more like him and act more like him because we know that since it's a marathon and not a sprint, the longer it takes to build something, the longer it will last. And so with that said, I do believe it is a fitting way to end this book and this series in a way where we take the opportunity to first reflect on God and how he has revealed himself to his people throughout the book of Joel. So what we're going to cover is not everything about God, but primarily what has God revealed about himself in this book. And I pray that this list will be an opportunity for you to rest in, to worship in God's character, that it might just inflame your hearts once again. I'm thinking particularly of those in this room that you know that you've run dry. You know the affections for the Lord have, have dampened for whatever reason. That this simple list, I don't think many of us are going to hear something new this morning, but it might fall afresh on us and stir our hearts. And so we're going to see five things, three attributes of God and two actions of God. Three attributes and then two actions out of this last passage. Number one, God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. As we finish Joel, we recognize, or at least I recognize, that one of the primary takeaways or things that I'm going to remember about this book is the way it began. As we finish, I'm going to remember how it began. There was an immediate, there was an urgent call to lament. And what we saw is that one mark of evidence that we are awakened to the realities of God is that we lament the realities of a fallen world. Let me say that again. One of the marks of evidence in our lives that we are awakened to the realities of God is that we lament the realities of a fallen world. Where a refusal to lament, 
when we see and we feel and we see others or we experience destruction uh, in this world and, and life in a fallen world, that when we fail to lament, that's not a sign of maturity that, well, since I'm so mature in the faith, that won't get me down. But I think it's a sign of immaturity. It reveals actually a lack of trust in God when we fail to lament fallenness in this world. Because God uses lament. He even commands lament to heal you. To wake us up, to draw us near, to ultimately fix our eyes on him. And so what we have saw all throughout the beginning of this series is that lament is praying in pain in a way that leads to trust. If we say that another way, that if you do not lament, you will not grow in your trust for God. And at the beginning of Joel, God's people were asleep at the wheel. They did not confront the reality of their situation. Uh, where, where the crops were wiped out from a locust invasion, they were going on as if nothing was wrong. And, and what really was revealed is that going about life as if nothing is wrong and nothing can bother me in life in a fallen world is not, again, a sign of maturity, but it's, it's a sign that you're living out of fear. Because we can tend to do that, can't we? Like, like to refuse to confront reality because we're afraid of what it will mean for our lives if we acknowledge it. It can be easier to pretend things are not the way they are and go on living like nothing is wrong. And it is a self-inflicted fantasy land we find ourselves in when we do that. But on the contrary, when pressure is exerted on a life, when pressure is exerted on a situation, we find out how trustworthy that someone or that something is when pressure is exerted on it. And here is what Joel tells us about our God of the Bible, that under any circumstance, God will prove true. Let that fall afresh. That in any circumstance, when pressure is put upon us, God will prove true and we can trust him. Trust him with our sorrow and our pain, especially because he is the God who is there and he is the God who cares. And Israel needed to wake up to lament so that they could trust. I find it interesting also that Joel began, if you remember, by saying, hey, guys, you're going to tell the following generations about this. What I'm about to tell you, you're going to tell your children, and they're going to tell their children, and they're going to tell their children. This devastation is going to live on in your family for generations. But that's not the final note. That's how he began. But then he ends in verse 20. Look at it again. But Judah shall be inhabited forever. And Jerusalem to all generations. That that is the final note. That is the final thing that you will tell your children. They will tell their children. They will tell their children. And all generations coming from where you are now will see the trustworthy faithfulness of God. Grace Church, do you realize that where we stand today, that when Joel wrote that phrase, all generations, do you realize he was talking about you? He was talking about you. In verse 20, writing it anywhere from 2,000 to 3,000 years ago, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's you. And that's me. Because of the trustworthy faithfulness of God. 
And so I encourage you to do some self-introspection right now, but certainly maybe moving on from this week. If you want to say, God, how can I really benefit from this series in the book of Joel that you have placed us through in the last six or seven weeks? Here's one way you can do it. You can ask God, God, where do I need to trust you right now? Where am I asleep to the realities that you are placing before me? What am I trying to not see out of fear? Perhaps you, like Israel, need to trust him with your pain. Maybe you need to feel empowered and free to lament, actually lament for the first time in ways that maybe you've not done in a long time or ever. Perhaps it's trusting God with relationships in your life, struggles you're having with your children, maybe young children, teenagers, maybe children that are grown and and, and you're taking those struggles and, and it's a burden that you're carrying. Maybe it's not even your struggles with your children, but it's your children's struggles that you are struggling to process as their parent. You need to trust him with that. Uh, maybe you need to trust him with your direction in life. And we talked about this a couple times in the series. Maybe you have a decision coming. Or you anticipate that there's going to be a decision coming in the next year, in the next couple of years, the next couple of months, maybe this week. And you need to trust him with the direction in your life. And you feel this internal calling that God is calling you to do something or go somewhere or be with someone. And you're not sure how it's going to work out. And it feels risky. And you're struggling to trust him with that. Do you have a decision coming? Have you entrusted it to him? We could go on and on, but I think and I hope the Spirit will allow you to apply this to your own life, that God is trustworthy. And no matter the circumstance, you can hear him covering you in the spiritual presence of the Spirit and saying, you can trust me with this. You haven't been trusting me with this, but you can. Number one, God is trustworthy. Number two, what we have seen throughout the book of Joel is that God is holy. God is holy. The, 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 the call to lament, and we've mentioned this several times throughout the series, it turned in chapter 2, to a, or later in chapter 1, to a call to repent, from a call to lament to a call to repent. And, and you know what? Joel never explicitly said that the locust invasion and devastation upon their land was punishment for specific sins. That was never explicitly stated in this book. But he did say that God providentially allowed that to happen for the purpose of having them turn to him. This is really important as we think about our lives because here's our natural propensity. Maybe you have this too, but I find myself often kind of defaulting back to this mode that is unhealthy. And the mode is this, that if things are going well for us in life, according to our standards, and we're healthy and we're safe and, and we're successful and things are fruitful and we're, we're maybe there's some form of wealth that we're kind of entering into and there's some success that's coming our way that we must think if that's happening, God must be happy with me. And on the flip side, if things are going poorly for us, if there's some form of ailment or suffering, emotional, uh, physical, financial, things are not going well at work, things are not going well in the home, there's tension everywhere, and there's just real struggle, and you're just not happy, and things are failing, you think everywhere I look, things are failing, then there's this thought and the propensity to think that if that's true, then God must be mad with me. He must be mad at us. And that could be a very unhealthy view of God that is in our making. 
And so what we see throughout Scripture and what we see here in Joel is that God does not cause all suffering as direct punishment. Not all suffering is direct punishment, but he sovereignly and providentially uses all suffering to draw people to himself. That single truth will uphold you in your life. That he does not cause all suffering as direct punishment, but he uses all suffering to draw people to himself. Because when we draw near to God and we see him for who he really is and who he has revealed himself to be, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, it will conversely allow us to see ourselves for how we really are. And God draws us near, he says this in verse 17, to make us holy. He reveals himself to you, he reveals himself to me, he revealed himself to the people of Israel for the purpose of making them holy. Verse 17, so you may know me, and then in Jerusalem shall be holy. Set apart. And so what we have said multiple times in this series is that the greatest and primary grace upon your life, if you are walking with Christ, the greatest grace upon your life was the moment you first realized you can't save yourself. Of all the graces God has given you and blessed you with, that is the greatest. was the moment you saw, I can't save myself. It's a painful moment. But when it's revealed by the Lord, it is a beautifully agonizing moment when we see that the problem is not just out there in the world but it's first in here it's in my heart so so this past week um uh those of you who are on social media all, all the different social media platforms they usually have something called trending topics um you know, what are the things, the topics that are generating the most posts on that platform in that moment? What is trending? Well, this past week was a pretty active week. This past Tuesday in particular, the second trending topic on Twitter was the story about a missile being fired into Poland. The initial thought on Midday Tuesday was that uh, it came from Russia, and that sparked a lot of fear that that would then expand the Russian and Ukrainian war into other countries and essentially bring us into a world war since, many of you know, Poland is a NATO country. If a NATO country gets attacked, all of NATO comes in defense of it and all of a sudden we'd be in a world war. Like, really serious stuff. And on Tuesday, it was trending number two in the world on Twitter. But it wasn't first. Do you know what was trending first on this Tuesday afternoon? Ticketmaster's system went down, and people were not able to buy tickets to Taylor Swift's concert tour next year. Trending number one. People were in complete panic mode, waiting for hours and hours on this online queue, then getting kicked off and not being able to secure their tickets. And and I saw one person say that, if this does not tell you the reality of our world right now and the state that the world is in, that there's a potential world war that we're going to, but it's not as important as Taylor Swift's concert tickets going down. I I don't even want to make eye contact. I know some of you were in the queue, all right, on Tuesday, all right? I I don't want to, I want to tread carefully. Um, That's okay if you were among the masses. 
But Taylor Swift recently came out, many of you know, with a new album. It broke all kinds of records. This tour will be very much her new album. I have not listened to the entire album. I cannot endorse the entire album and tell you to go listen to it or tell you to not listen to it. This is not an endorsement. But I do know one song that I believe is one of the most popular songs that's called Antihero. And the chorus of this song contains these words on repeat, Taylor Swift's Antihero. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. I will not sing it. But I would if I could, all right? And again, I, I don't know all the ins and outs of the song. I don't know if there's hidden meanings all in that. But it, for me, was a little bit surprising and in some ways refreshing that someone says, no, I'm the problem. It starts with me. And what's especially notable to me is that it's not the first time a prominent cultural figure claimed this. And I've shared this one before, but maybe maybe uh, don't remember it or did not hear it, that in 1908, a major London newspaper called The Times sent a question out to the most notable authors and what you would call influencers throughout England. And the question was this, what is wrong with the world? And they asked these people to submit an essay to be published in the paper. Because in 1908, it was the social media of the day. It was the most prominent media platform. Everybody read it. And so they wanted a written response. They published it in the paper. And G.K. Chesterton was a prominent author, also theologian at the time. Most importantly, a believer in Jesus Christ. He wrote back this to the paper to be published. Uh, it's up on the screen. Dear sir, regarding your article, what's wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Now, I'm not saying that Taylor Swift stole her lyrics from an early 20th century British <laughs> philosopher and theologian, but I'm not saying she didn't either. Because I'm sure Chesterton had a lot of thoughts to the answer of that question. Political reasons, social reasons, theological and church reasons that he could have gone on and on and on about what is wrong with the world. But he started by taking an honest look at himself. And what Joel has showed us is that of all the things God reveals for our good, it is the truth that we are inherently not good and need in something that is the most important. In need of someone. That when you come to the end of your rope and the world comes crashing down and you realize, I can't do this on my own. The Spirit leads you to the one who is holy. And we do see that we are the problem. But it doesn't have to end that way, which leads to number three. What else do we learn about God in the book of Joel? Number three, that God is gracious. Let it fall afresh on you this morning. God is gracious. Because when we draw near to the God who is there, we cry out to the God who listens in difficult moments, our, quest our questions can begin to shift. We see a shift of our questions. And we go from God asking God, why did you do this? Why did you allow this? To God, what do you want to teach me through this? What do you want to teach me about yourself? What do you want to teach me about me? And in that moment, we find because of his grace, the search ends with him. When we receive the grace we need to see God for who he is and what he has done, there is no chance you would choose anything else. 
The moment you see God for who he really is, you would never choose anything else. That God is not a way, but that he is the way. And, and, and two words that you often hear that go together with God and was in our call to worship passage, it's really sourced in the Bible. When God defined himself in Exodus chapter 30 through 32, he said that God is merciful and gracious. And so we see those words together, right? They're cousins, his mercy and his grace. They do go together, but they're not the same. Listen closely. God's mercy means he does not give us what we deserve. Notably, judgment and punishment for sinning against him. God's grace means he does give us what we don't deserve. You see it? God's mercy is he does not give us what we do deserve. But God's grace is that he does give us what we don't deserve. And we need both forgiveness and love and reconciliation with him. He is not a way. He is the way. And the only way we know that is because God has made himself known to us. Uh, so this past year, I spent a lot of my early mornings with a Dutch theologian, Herman Bovink, who's been dead for a long time. And particularly in volume one of his four-volume set, Reformed Dogmatics. And they were amongst the most stirring 15 to 20 minutes I had in my days. And his chapters on Revelation were worth the 800-page book in and of itself. So soul-stirring to read and so simple when he would talk about how all of Revelation is an act of grace. All of Revelation is an act of grace and God can only be known by God. Simple truths. That God can only be known by God. And not to get totally into the weeds here, but I think it's instructive, is that he went on to talk about and unpack how all knowledge is based in revelation. That everything you believe about everything and everyone is because something was revealed to you in order to believe it. So you came into this room this morning and you sat down in a pew. And you sat down in a pew because you believed it would hold your weight. And that was revealed to you. And when you came in others and others were sitting on the pews. Or maybe past experiences, you came in and you sat in these same pews and they held your weight. That maybe as you're sitting down that you're noticing the structural alignment that made you believe, I'm, I'm going to sit down here and it's going to hold me. And so you saw that, it was revealed to you, and you sat. All knowledge is rooted in revelation. And all religions and worldviews rely on and are rooted in revelation. And so what he went, in, went on to unpack is why many people, and he's writing really in, in the middle of the Enlightenment, a really fascinating period of, of Western history, of, of, of the rise of what he called the view of indifferentism. Hang with me. And, and this view is, it says that it does not matter what you believe as long as whatever it is leads you to live a good life. So however you've taken in the world, whatever's been revealed to you, it doesn't matter really what you believe as long as it leads you to live a good life. And Bobbing traced that back to a German philosopher in the Enlightenment called Gotthold Lessing, who really talked about this religion of indifferentism. Doesn't matter what you believe, just live a good life. And it's a view that falls apart as Bavink unpacked it. It falls apart under any real analysis, either secular analysis or religious analysis. But it is such a strong coping mechanism 
which is why it has grown to be in so many ways the dominant mindset of current day secular Western culture. Is that not the prominent mentality in 2022? That you seek your truth and I'm going to seek my truth and you can believe whatever you want to believe. Just don't be a jerk. And it's so enticing. And it is so enticing because it allows you really to do whatever you want to do and not be bound by any higher authority. You can just not be a jerk, however you define what a jerk is. And it's not necessarily an atheist position that says with conviction there is no God, but it's an agnostic position that says, really, I don't care if there is a God. Good for you if you believe it. I'll believe that in my own way. Let's just not be a jerk. What that does is it allows us to create a God that we want to exist. And inevitably, that God will approve the way we want to live. But when God makes himself known to us, our conviction and then our response of repentance and drawing near to him is in alignment with who he is because his grace was revealed that he is merciful and gracious and he forgives and he restores and he makes us good when we cannot do it without him. Our God is a gracious God. And when our hearts see that, you will not help but turn to him. Let's keep going. Now we saw three attributes of God in Joel. We finish now with two things that God does. Number four, God protects. God protects. In this final passage, Joel speaks the word of the Lord in giving a reminder of their future salvation and blessing to a reminder of the judgment that will come upon all those who don't turn to him. And so there's an effective contrast of pictures in this last uh, passage. You have a mountain that drips of sweet wine, and the grape harvest is full, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And if you could picture yourself on a mountainside, and as far as the eye can see, there's just life in every direction, life, bountiful life. And then there's a fountain that comes forth from the house of the Lord. And knowing that virtually everybody in the day that Joel was writing to was an agrarian life, right, was some kind of farmer, they would hear that and they would feel that life everywhere. That we have a father who loves to bless his children, who loves to give good gifts. And then you get to verse 19, and the second picture is of a desolate wasteland. A picture of judgment that we talked about last week towards those who oppress the people of God. And as far as the eye can see, there's no life. There's nothing. And you have now this powerful contrast. And Joel speaks of a jealous God. And we think jealous God. We don't think immature jealousy, but the rightful zeal of an all-loving and all-powerful God that speaks to our deeply held desire to be safe. We all want to be safe, man. We're in the suburbs. Safety of our lives and our homes and our cars and our kids is paramount for almost everyone here. And that desire comes from him, for he is our protector. And then lastly, and we finish with this, our God provides. Our God protects and our God provides. The final verse of Joel, let's look at it again. Verse 21, I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. 
the ultimate aim of God in the universe, the final outcome of the day of the Lord that all of history is marching towards from the moment God said, let there be light, is that he may be known by his people and that he, that they will be known by him as their God, right? That we know him and we are known by him. And so when he dwells in Zion, which is the name of the city of God at the end of days, we are there with him. Can you picture it? That God is there, but you are also there. How is it that you are there? How in the world could you be there on that day? Because we have a God who has revealed himself. And we have a God who provides for those who cannot get into his presence without his work. And so that final words, when he says, I will avenge their blood, it is the final road of the many roads we have taken in Joel that lead to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's the final road we travel. That God avenges the blood of his people. How? It's the shock of the universe. By shedding his own blood for us on the cross. By taking that judgment upon himself. And providing healing from the ruptures of the fall in our own hearts. Because the only way to stop the bleeding was to bleed himself. Which is why the Gospel of John begins with the declaration that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ is the perfect revelation of God. And Jesus, in his own words, the night before he goes to the cross, he tells them in John chapter 16... And this will close our entire series of the book of Joel, because I think John 16, 33 is a summary of the entire book of Joel. It'll be up on the screen, and glory in these words, and I'll lead us in prayer. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this book and the time that we were given to go through it verse by verse. I pray, Lord, that we, as the members and tenors of Grace Church, would never be the same when we hear or look at the book of Joel again. That we know, Lord, that you are a God who is trustworthy, a God who is holy and gracious, a God who has revealed himself to us, that you protect us and you provide for us, Lord. Let this ancient truth fall afresh on us, Lord, and let us see that that came to a climax at the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would glory in that, that it would spur us and wake us up, Lord. And I pray especially for anybody listening or anybody who's here this morning who, have, who has not yet trusted their lives to you, Lord, that they would see that you are not a way, but you are the way. Father, open our eyes. And allow us to respond in faith. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond in song before we take the Lord's Supper.